0: Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, a delightful discussion between the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, Mr. Clay Jenkinson, and the author, Lindsay Chervinsky. And they discuss the history of Washington, D.C.
1: Lindsay Chervinsky is a young scholar taking a fresh look at things we thought we knew. And she's now investigating the creation of the national capital, the District of Columbia. And she has some startling conclusions, among which is that race played a very important part in the location of the Capitol, in the Upper South.
0: And you also talk about whether or not D.C. should be granted
1: statehood. It's clear historically that admitting new states to keep the balance between Republican or Democrat or North and South has been an important part of American history, and partisanship is a big factor in considering D.C. statehood.
0: Please join us for all that and more on this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour. Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do?, our weekly opportunity to discuss current American events with President Thomas Jefferson. And good to see you today, Mr. Jefferson.
1: Good day to you,
0: citizens. Sir, I'd like to speak to you today about compromise, specifically compromise in government. You've told me that majority rule is essential to a republic. So where does compromise fit into this?
1: As I put it in my first inaugural address, the will of the majority must in all cases prevail, even if it's a narrow majority, but the majority then has a moral duty to reach out to the minority, particularly in a close election and try to accommodate as many of their concerns as possible. In other words, we could not be a society if there weren't a spirit of compromise. There will never be unanimity in any group of human beings who gather together for public purposes. And therefore, compromise is essential. There would have been no constitution without compromise. There would have been no declaration of independence without compromise. The compromise is the stuff of a free people. You're not always going to get your way. But if you agree to respect the other and to believe that their purposes and their arguments are legitimate and try to accommodate views not your own as much as humanly possible, you will find that there can be much more harmony in American life than you might think.
0: I believe, sir, that is more easily expressed than actually accomplished. I find it interesting that the actual location of our nation's capital was arrived at through compromise. And you were a part of that,
1: sir. I was just back from my five years in France. I was the new Secretary of State. And one day outside of Mr. Washington's home, I saw Colonel Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton, looking disheveled and downcast. And we walked arm in arm several times up and down the street. I inquired as to his despondency, and he said that his fiscal bill, the bill to fund the national and state debt, uh, was uh, being derailed in Congress, and he feared that it would not pass. And if it did not pass, he probably would have to resign as the Secretary of the Treasury. And uh, I asked him if there were anything that I could do to help him. uh, And he said, yes, could I get some Southerners on board to to pass the, the, the funding bill. And I said, I can't do that, but I will gladly host a dinner party and bring Mr. Madison and some other prominent Southern representatives and senators in, and, and you all can talk it through under the, the the harmony of good wines and fine French cuisine, and perhaps you can come to some sort of an agreement, which they did. And the, the compromise was that Mr. Hamilton got his funding apparatus passed but the capital was now moved to the Upper South on the Potomac River.
0: Mr. Jefferson, for decades, Washington, D.C. has fought for its own statehood, which to this time has been denied. Do you have any insights or feelings or thoughts about this, sir?
1: In my own lifetime, I would have opposed statehood for the District of Columbia, partly because it had almost no population, but, but also because it was meant to be a federal reserve. It was meant to be a federal reservation just as a military reservation might exist. It was not part of Maryland. It was not part of Virginia. It was not part of Pennsylvania or New York. It was a a little enclave that was national in sovereignty and separated from the routine political systems and constitutions of the various states. I think that independence for the national government was important, and not just as a a practical matter, but symbolically to have a, a national place that was owned by no state and controlled by none. So in my own time, I think I would have opposed statehood just on that basis.
0: But now, sir, there is a population of 700,000 people there and they are denied uh, denied voting,
1: actually. One of the rallying cries of our revolutionary movement was no taxation without representation. And I'm told that that phrase um, is, is routinely used again by the denizens of the District of Columbia.
0: Knowing that, sir, would you reconsider your position?
1: I defer to your own time to settle this, but I think it is galling for those individuals to be stateless, to be taxed, to be brought into jury duty, to be conscripted into American armies, uh, to do all the things that citizens must do, but without an actual true representative of their interests, a voting representative in the Congress of the United States. And maybe there's a compromise that can be developed, which does a little of each.
0: Thank you very much, Mr. Jefferson.
1: You're welcome, sir.
0: citizens, and welcome to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, your weekly conversation with or about President Thomas Jefferson. I'm your host, David Swenson, here with the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, the noted humanities scholar and author, Clay Jenkinson. And we are pleased today to welcome back Dr. Lindsay Chervinsky, a noted historian of early America and author of The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution. Lindsay, you're currently a scholar in residence at the Institute for Thomas Paine Studies at Iona College and a senior fellow at the International Center for Jefferson Studies. And you teach at the School of Media and Public Affairs at George Washington University. And also, Lindsay, you co host a podcast, The Past, The Promise, The Presidency and publish a newsletter titled Imperfect Union. Welcome back, Lindsay, and so good to have you here with us.
2: Well, thank you guys so much for having me back. It's great to be here.
1: How do you juggle all of this? That's a lot of uh, plates you're spinning.
2: Well, the honest answer is that right now my work-life balance isn't probably what it ought to be. Um, (laughs) The more slightly more hopeful answer is that I really love working on multiple projects and each of those things speaks to a different audience, sometimes an overlapping one, but, and uses different mediums and allows me to share different stories. And so I am never bored and um, probably should learn to say no a little bit more.
1: Well, you know what uh, Thoreau said, as long as possible, remain free and uncommitted. This is the time in your life to do all of this because you can, you're, you're building a foundation for decades of celebrity and uh, historical respect. And we appreciate your being a guest here uh, from time to time and more, I hope, on the Thomas Jefferson Hour. So I want to ask you a question about the national capital of the United States. And we all hear about the great dinner party that Jefferson hosted. And Hamilton was there wanting his funding um, package to be passed. And Madison was there because he didn't like Hamilton's funding package. And During the course of this dinner that a a bargain was created, a trade, a quid pro quo, and that uh, Madison reluctantly decided to support the funding mechanisms of Alexander Hamilton's fiscal plan in exchange for Hamilton convincing some Northerners to accept the placement of the national capital on the Potomac. And therefore, we got uh, Washington, D.C. in due time. How reliable is this story, do you think?
2: That's such a good place to start the conversation. My guess is, like with a lot of things that Jefferson wrote about, there is certainly a large helping of truth to it. There's probably a little bit more nuance than than he lets on. Um, unfortunately for us in the 21st century, that's really the only record we have of that conversation, so we kind of have to take his word for it, but... I usually encourage people to take it with sort of a bucket of salt, um, given, you know, when he's sort of writing this reflection. But I think that the dinner itself, even if he's sort of embellishing what happens here, the idea behind it and the compromise that he's discussing is absolutely accurate. And the I mean, I think it would be helpful at some point if we do talk about sort of why there needed to be a federal capital, but. The background for that sort of where it should be had a lot to do with what sort of social, economic, cultural influences would reign supreme over the federal city. And so if it was in a place like New York City, then, of course, commerce and trade and the merchant interests would be sort of front and center. But if it was in a more pastoral scene, a little bit farther west and maybe a little bit farther south, Southerners were likely to have more influence and sort of the human farmer interest would be more front and center. And so that compromise between Hamilton's financial plans and a more rural setting is very literally a compromise between these two ideas and, of course, these two men.
1: But, you know, Jefferson says he was new. He had been in France for five years. He's now in the national capital in New York and he's near Washington's residence. And he sees this haggard looking person on the street. It turns out to be Hamilton. He's disheveled, he's melancholic. And he says that he's probably going to have to quit because it looks like his funding scheme is not going to um, be approved by the Congress. He can't understand why Madison has turned on him. And then Jefferson says, arm in arm, we walked up and down the street a couple of turns. (laughs) Maybe there's something that I can do. (laughs) And So Jefferson, it's just such a beautiful Jefferson story. Even if it's not 100% true.
2: Hamilton and Jefferson certainly knew each other, but there's not a whole lot of reason to suggest that Hamilton would confide in Jefferson over anyone else. So why he would unburden himself in the middle of the street to someone he wasn't particularly close to is, I think, a question we should maybe ask. But there is no doubt that this dinner took place and there's no doubt that the compromise took place. So certainly some of that happened. And as we discussed last time, Jefferson did have beautiful manners when he wanted to have beautiful manners. So I have no doubt that he facilitated those negotiations. Whether he was ever arm in arm with Hamilton is a little bit hard to hard to believe.
1: What if this hadn't happened? What if Hamilton had gotten his fiscal scheme without this compromise and the Capitol had wound up in Philadelphia? How would we be different if the Southerners hadn't gotten their way and put the capital on the Potomac?
2: That's a big question. Um, So I think the the largest implication would be the role of slavery, because by the 1790s, Philadelphia and Pennsylvania had laws on the books that required gradual manumission or for people who were bringing their enslaved individuals into the city, they were um, automatically manumitted after six months. So you are not going to have um, markets where people are selling their enslaved individuals a few feet from the Capitol. You are not going to have um, jails where runaway enslaved individuals are being held. You are not going to have that type of um, very pervasive element of slavery in the day-to-day life in the national city like you do once it becomes Washington, DC. And We should absolutely talk about the role of slavery in Washington, D.C., because it is a very unique element to the city and the national story. And D.C. plays sort of this weird pivot point for a lot of the debate over this issue.
1: The old narrative was that Jefferson believed that you create a capital in the wilderness from the grassroots up, and this is a symbolizes a new start for a new republic. And he loved the pastoral, and so here was a new pastoral national capital. He, he said it was like a rural villa in certain ways. That's the narrative, and it's all probably true in some sense. But now that we are so attuned to seeing race everywhere, isn't it possible that behind all that screen of Virgil and pastoralism, there was a protection of the Southern institution of slavery that these people wanted to make sure that no one could really mess with slavery and that the closer the capital got to Virginia and the true South, the more likely they were able to resist any embarrassment over slavery.
2: It's a powerful question. Um, I don't think that Jefferson necessarily was focused on that per se. But I have no doubt that that was a factor for other Southerners because many of the Northern states had already started to pass these laws that we discussed and were in the process of passing more and were in the process of doing things like creating schools for free Black children to go to school. And the thought of that in the South, of course, is terrifying. And so there's no doubt that that was a factor that they were considering and I also wanted to sort of the wanted to respond to the your question the beginning part of your question. I was doing some research on John Quincy Adams' experience in Washington DC in the lead up to his presidency as Secretary of State and as president. And he of course becomes this renowned abolitionist later in life especially in his congressional career post presidency. He had always been anti-slavery as a political question. But when he was Secretary of State and when he was president Slavery was a daily and integral part of his life. He went to his friends' houses that had owned enslaved individuals and they you know took his coat and brought him food and took care of his horses. He lived down the street from a um, a tavern that sometimes functioned as a jail for individuals who had run away. and when he was actually in the White House, his niece and nephew lived with him and they owned individuals and brought them to the White House. So he literally had enslaved individuals in the White House. And that's not to, you know, make a judgment about his presidency. But I do think that it's important when we think about, you know, applying the race lens, that was also the life they were living. They could not not walk through a day without seeing race, without seeing slavery, even people who were very committed to its abolition. And so I think that's just a really important thing to always remind ourselves is that, yes, we as historians are always bringing up race and slavery, but that's because it really was a daily part of their existence too.
1: But we've been for so long wearing blinders. I mean, really for most of American yeah. history, we have whitewashed this set of stories. Yeah. And now that we have really become intense about this, it turns up that it's there's disillusionment in every direction when you realize how the Constitutional Convention reached impasses and made compromises with the Deep South that had profound negative implications for all of American history to this day, and how the South really held the rest of the country hostage. If you don't um, grandfather slavery, in, if you mess with slavery in any significant way, we'll walk and there'll be no union, and they acquiesced. And in the Declaration of Independence, Jefferson had that anti-slave trade manifesto, and he it was expunged as he says at the insistence of the Carolinas and Georgia, and uh, you know the Three Fifths Clause, the Electoral College, some people say the Second Amendment, but it turns out behind all of this there is this this subterranean and not always even subterranean dynamics of race and the protection of slavery, and it when I when I look at this having spent decades thinking about these questions, I feel ashamed that I was so uh, naive, and I also feel so sullied in a way that the mythology of America's founding doesn't really stand up very well to deep scrutiny.
2: I actually think that it's I was listening to your conversation with Joe Ellis, one of your more recent ones, and I actually wanted to take the opportunity to commend you because there are a lot of people who have been studying this issue for a really long time, and they don't want to rethink their previous approaches and their previous considerations, or even changes in the language, they're very uncomfortable when people start to change the language that we now consider to be appropriate. And if anything, I think that it's a gift that you have the ability to rethink some of your ideas, to share new history, and to encourage others to do so. And I think that's actually a really great thing.
0: We need to take a short break, but we'll be back in just a moment to continue this conversation about the history of Washington, D.C. with Lindsay Chervinsky and Clay Jenkinson. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour. Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. This week, a discussion about the history of Washington, D.C. with Lindsay Chervinsky and Clay Jenkinson. And uh, I have a question that I'd like to set things up a little better. But, uh, Lindsay, I want to give you a chance to respond to Clay and his comment about the mythology of Washington, D.C.
2: Well, I think that, you know, you talked about how there's been this shadow cast and it's sort of hard to hold on to the national mythology. And I think it really depends how we start the national mythology question. And maybe it's because I started studying history at a time when sort of flaws were front and center. And so I never really had this concept that these were demigods. They were incredibly intelligent, unbelievably talented humans, but they were flawed humans. And So when I look at the Constitution, when I look at our founding, when I look at this national story, like you said, I think of the Constitution as a bunch of compromises and they did the best that they could to get as many votes. But it was not this, you know, tablet that was handed down from high above. It was very much a product of humans who didn't agree about a lot of stuff and they knew there were flaws. Of course, Washington, you know, sends out copies and he says, This was the best version that we could get, and I hope that future generations will, you know, it's open to amendment. And they genuinely hoped and fervently wished that future generations would come up with solutions that they hadn't thought of, would solve the problem of slavery, would solve some of these geographical and factional divisions and be creative and continue to amend this process. I know you talked a little bit about the amendment process in in a previous episode, but I actually think that the best way that we can honor that legacy is to continue to try and improve it. And that's what they would want us to do. And so for me, that's actually a much more hopeful story as opposed to they let me down or they're not what I thought that they were. Um, I think of, you know, maybe we're letting them down because we're not trying to improve and change as much as we possibly could. But that's kind of how I end up. I, I present the national mythology and I think that we can continue to hold on to it.
0: I was so pleased this week when I found out that the two of you had agreed to talk about the history of Washington D.C. I find it fascinating, having lived there a couple of times. Um, I I, uh, I have a, a great affinity for the city, um, but I, I'm not certain that people know. You know, it was founded in July of 1790. But my understanding—now correct me if I'm wrong—is that um, it was actually established by the Constitution, and it's it's unique in that, isn't it?
2: Yes, absolutely. So the, I think the historical context behind why there should be a federal city is pretty important to know. So in, um, I believe it was June of 1783, a line of the Continental Army marched on Congress in, that were currently stationed in Philadelphia and demanded their back pay. They Some of the officers and the soldiers hadn't been paid in years. So they had they had every right to protest. Not so much every right to, you know, sort of violently threaten Congress, which they kind of did. And Congress was very concerned about, you know, their physical safety. And they sent messages to the Pennsylvania authorities, the state authorities, asking for assistance, basically to come defend them. And the Pennsylvania authorities were not particularly interested in getting on the wrong side of these soldiers because they didn't have any money to pay them either. And so they declined. And uh, Washington ended up coming to the rescue. He sent some troops. He, you know, suppressed this mutiny. But a lot of congressmen never forgot that moment where their safety was up to the discretion of state authorities, and that was something they were. Really- <laughs> that's
0: it. That's very interesting. <laughs> and
2: they were very uncomfortable with that notion. And so, if there was a federal city, if there was a if there was land and authority that the federal government was in charge of, then they could be in charge of their own security and their own safety. And so that's why there is a clause inserted in the Constitution saying that um, you know Congress can create a ten by ten square mile city. And it would be under federal jurisdiction so that the states can't pressure Congress and they can also protect themselves accordingly.
0: Before I let you go on that question, the two of you discussed uh, beautifully this meeting with uh, Hamilton and, and Jefferson, um, but I'm not sure that people understand what the real conflict was between uh, the southern states and the northern states. Could you, could you maybe, the two of you, explain that better?
2: Sure. So Congress had kind of been everywhere during the war. It had sort of been stationed mostly in Philadelphia because that was sort of a central point leading up to the war and it was the biggest city. And so it made sense there was going to be places for people to stay and enough service providers to attend to the needs and wants of Congress. But during outbreaks of yellow fever, it had gone to Trenton, it had fled west when the British invaded Philadelphia. So there hadn't necessarily been a hub. So New York City was actually the first place that the federal government gathered in 1789. It was where Washington and Adams took their first, first oath of office and where the first federal Congress opened. And the so the question was, where was this capital going to be? And it understandably, a lot of the states wanted the capital because it was going to make them more powerful. It was going to make their real estate more valuable. It was going to make their merchants more wealthy. And so there was a lot of squabbling about where it should be. And some people wanted it in the north. Some people wanted it in the south. Some people wanted it in the middle. And then there was, of course, an east-west question of, is it going to be on the Atlantic seaboard or is it going to be more in the interior as the country naturally was planning to expand? And so there was this larger question about who was going to win this fight to be able to influence the the federal government and then, of course, the national city as well.
0: So the southern states issue was that they wanted a capital that was closer to slave friendly states and perhaps more influence, while the northerners were primarily interested in the assumption of revolutionary war debt, Right.
2: Yeah. So these are sort of two separate issues. A lot of the Southern representatives were very concerned about the implications if they went to a northern city and they brought enslaved individuals with them, what would happen to their enslaved status? And this was something that Washington actually grappled with firsthand The other issue was a financial issue, and it was the assumption of states' debts. Hamilton wanted the federal government to take over the remaining debts from the Revolutionary War to ensure that they were paid, and they were paid fairly, and that the national credit was sound. And some of the states felt that that was very unfair because they had already paid off their debts or paid off a larger portion. So they felt like other states were going to benefit more than they were from this question. And according to Jefferson, he was the one that brought them together and sort of made the trade with Hamilton and Madison that Madison would get the location of the national city that he wanted and Hamilton would get the financial bill that he wanted.
1: But Jefferson David was a visionary, a, a utopian visionary and he loved the idea of capital removal and so he had arranged for help to arrange for the removal of the capital of Virginia from Williamsburg to Richmond which was more central and away from the miasma of the lower Chesapeake. And then Jefferson believed that the new national capital should be carved out of the grass itself because this would somehow be a symbol of a, of a new order of things, a Virgilian new order of things in the history of the world. And so you have that idealism. And I think that was a genuine and honest, if slightly perplexing idealism in Jefferson. But beneath it, apparently, there were also some naked Southern self-interests at work here both Jefferson and Washington believed wrongly that the Potomac was going to be the gateway to the West. And so Jefferson and Washington were provincial and parochial in certain ways. They wanted Virginia to be it. Uh, They certainly didn't want New York to be the answer. And so there are lots of dynamics going on in this story and there's no single way to look at it. But but I think what Lindsay is, is, is bringing to this, tell me if I'm wrong, Lindsay, which is a fresh perspective, is that slavery has to be factored in. Enslavement has to be factored into this narrative, that you can't just look on it as uh, the hopeless idealist Jefferson and then everyone vying for the financial benefit of having the capital in their own place. But when Jefferson got the capital, and he was by no means alone in this, um, Governor Morris, the high-toned Federalist, um, said, what a mistake. He said, I find that Washington is a great city for future habitation. All we need is wine and shops and books, bookstalls and hotels and restaurants and a few other frivolities like this to make it a perfect capital. I think Albert Gallatin said, every member of Congress, without a single exception, hates Washington, D.C. Those early years could not have been fun.
2: <laughs> no, well, and I think, you know, um, Absolutely. The slavery part is central, but there's also a larger question of, you know, what is the nation going to be and what is going to be the character of the nation? And so I think that that is a huge part of this national city question, because is it going to be a country that focuses on trade and merchants and banking and infrastructure? Or is it going to be a country that focuses on agriculture? And inherently, the agriculture question sort of wins initially and that's why it's this rural place and you're not going to have the corruption and the sin and the pestilence of you know cities, although the pestilence part, they kind of got wrong because of the location. Um, but it was this idea that it would be this more human farmer, virtuous Republican city. And even sort of the ideals of what that was supposed to be were reflected in the design of the city, the architecture, the layout. They were all intended to remind America remind Americans about their virtuous republican core. Ironically, um Jefferson's vision kind of came to be just much later. If you come to Washington DC now and you walk down the National Mall and you see the Smithsonian museums and like the most premier museum infrastructure in the in the world and you see all of these incredible monuments and these buildings, it is It did kind of end up being what he wanted it to be, just it took a really long time to get there.
1: But L'Enfant, Pierre L'Enfant, who was the contract designer, um, moved in a direction towards Versailles that Jefferson was a little uncomfortable with. Jefferson wanted a modest Palladian national capital. He actually submitted a design for the president's house that would have looked a fair amount like the Villa Rotunda or like Monticello. Jefferson wanted, it, and this is what such an important point you're making, Lindsay, Jefferson believed that in political theater, and he walked to his inauguration, you know, he met people in his slippers, he dressed down as president, he wanted the national capital to, to evoke Republican values, small r Republican values. He did not want Versailles, he did not want something grand and imposing. He, Jefferson was not a big fan of the national government. He believed in the national government, but he wanted it to be Strictly small-R Republican. And so he was very uneasy about this, the way things headed. And so I think if he came there today, he would be thrilled by the fact that it's now a cultural capital of the world. And there's a lot of pastoral left in Washington, D.C., and, you know, more than Central Park. And Rock Creek Park continues to be one of the great parks of the country. It's not as well regarded or known as, say, Central Park, but it's actually better in some it's important beautiful. ways. Very beautiful and it he, he and he believed in it because he wanted to ruralize America. He wanted he wanted all of America to retain a rural um, signature and, and he designed uh, an ideal town plotting system which was used in Jeffersonville, Indiana, and other places where there would every other square block would be permanent parkland, permanent grass. So Jefferson was really committed to this Virgilian Horatian pastoral ideal and got away with a lot of it uh, amazingly. Um, But I think that the idea that that Washington would ever become an imperial capital would have troubled Jefferson pretty deeply.
2: Well, and to a certain extent, it didn't, because we still think of New York City as the financial capital of the country. And some of the other cities are sort of, you know, vie for cultural elements, certainly Los Angeles with Hollywood and all of that. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, when we th- when we think of Washington, D.C., it does have a certain government stature to it, but it's not the only city. It's not like Paris. It's not like London. And that was the point. Um, that was very intentional. And so, while, you know, Hamilton kind of, his vision for the country won out in a lot of ways, I think Jefferson's vision for that definitely
1: lingered. Yeah, two things about that. First of all, um, I, I agree with you that that New York, Los Angeles, Nashville, Atlanta, compete with the national capital in a way that London doesn't have to compete with Birmingham or Manchester uh, or Paris with Bordeaux. But the big loser, in my opinion, is Philadelphia, which was a splendid (laughs) cultural capital. I mean, a great city. And it has lost something over time because it didn't get to keep the capital. New York was going to be fine because it was in that ideal Harbor and New York had the kind of a, 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 an early, deep commitment to corporate capitalism and so on. So, I think that's a, I think that's a really important insight. Do you think that the capacity of slavery to keep its foothold in American life for decades owes something to that apparent um, bargain over dinner? So in other words, we get why the Southerners would want that. Did it pay off for them?
2: Yes, uh, for better and for worse. So um, slavery was abolished in Washington, D.C. before it was abolished nationally. However, anyone who's been to Washington, D.C. knows how close it is to Virginia and Maryland. And keep in mind, of course, Maryland was a slave state until the end of the Civil War. And Virginia was actually Alexandria itself was one of the leading hubs for the domestic slave trade up until the end of the Civil War. There's a great new book out by Joshua Rothman called The Ledger and the Chain about a very famous at the time and the largest domestic slave trader in the United States that was uh, based out of Alexandria, Virginia. And that was because So many of the farms and agricultural centers in places like Maryland and Virginia no longer had the same need for labor that places like South Carolina did. And so they would round up humans, hold them until they had enough for a shipment, and then ship them south to New Orleans. And that story doesn't happen without Washington, D.C. sort of being where it is and serving as a cultural hub. Um, The flip side of that is because Washington, D.C. did abolished slavery earlier and was a central sort of hub for transportation and communication networks. It was a very important stop for people fleeing and trying to secure their own freedom. It did have a very vibrant black free free black population. And it served as a very powerful reminder of the pain and suffering that went along with slavery. So there's a very famous engraving of a, coughle of enslaved individuals being shuffled past the Capitol. And that is because there was a market for enslaved individuals just a block away from the Capitol. And so for Northerners from places like Vermont or New Hampshire, where there were very few numbers of enslaved individuals, and by the time of like the 1830s, of course, there was no slavery there, to come and see this human suffering in person was a eye-opening experience. And so I think it both kept slavery in existence and facilitated the domestic trade and also ensured that it was going to be a part of the national conversation in a way that often Southerners did not want.
1: Did Hamilton know what had happened? The sense we get is that Hamilton really only cared about the fiscal thing and he it, the rest of it was neither here nor there to him. But he was an, uh, uh, an, an abolitionist and a principled opponent of slavery. Did he Did he realize what he had so easily given away there?
2: I don't think he understood that component. I think that he felt good about the arrangement, but didn't fully comprehend the power that he was handing over to the slave power uh, or the plantation power politically for several decades to come.
1: So that's a sad little piece of this because yep. Hamilton is an extremely intelligent and shrewd individual. And you would have thought he would have thought, "Uh, oh, there might be another way to get to yes on the funding issue without giving the South yet another tool for perpetuation of slavery.
2: Yes, although he often made compromises on his abolition. He helped family members purchase individuals, sell individuals, and so he was willing to make compromises. So maybe he figured that it was a compromise worth making.
0: Great question, great answer. We need to take a short break from this conversation with the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, Mr. Clay Jenkinson, and the noted author and historian Lindsay Chervinsky. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to the Thomas Jefferson
1: Hour. to this special edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. I'm Clay Jenkinson. Out of character this week, David Swenson is sitting virtually across from me, the semi-permanent guest host of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, and our friend Lindsay Chervinsky is here. And we are so glad that you are bringing fresh perspectives uh, to this program. Thank you. I want to uh, ask you a question about security. You said that after the Newburgh conspiracy. And after all the issues that attended the end of the war, Congress kind of scurrying away to avoid veterans and uh, disease and, and not knowing whether the states would be um, willing to protect them, etc. that there was a move to have a federal reservation for the government so that it would be separate from any of the 13 original states. And we got that, the constitution provided that 10 square miles. It's been reduced since, but um, but nevertheless, there's a Federal Reserve, which we call the District of Columbia. But now there is a concern that there is not enough of a security apparatus in the federal capital of the United States, given the volatility of the politics of our time. That's a disheartening thing, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it's very depressing. Um, it's, it's I think, one of the most disappointing aspects of the last several years is The concept that maybe the executive branch wouldn't try and protect Congress from um, a insurrection, a violent insurrection. And it really, I think, throws into sharp relief how much the federal government in Washington, D.C. has changed and how much the calculations behind that have changed. Because Maryland is not going to invade Washington, D.C. and threaten Congress, nor is Virginia. Um, And the thought of that is kind of laughable. But there are non-state actors that are a threat. And there is an increasing feeling among many that, you know, the National Guard, which is under the control of the president, cannot be relied upon to protect Congress if there is going to be that partisan division. And so um, just for anyone who who doesn't know this, that the DC National Guard or the National Guard is technically directly responsible to the president. And usually that authority is delegated to the secretary of the army. So Washington, D.C. authorities cannot dispatch them without the approval of the secretary of the army. And that is what happened on January 6th that took several hours to get that approval. And um, so that's you know something I think we need to grapple with, aside from the fact that there are also over 700,000 individuals that don't have, you know, full representation, but that's kind of a, a separate issue. It's
1: an important separate issue. So in my lifetime, 9-11, the security in the federal capital grew much more emphatic. And that seemed deplorable because we love the idea of an open government, the people's government. And even as late as as this last um, winter um the capital was a, the capital, of the building was surprisingly easy to get into. Now, because of what happened, we're seeing more permanent fencing. Uh, we're going into another phase of um, a kind of a, a capital under siege or a, a potential capital under siege. I find that really deeply deplorable. How does it feel for someone who's living and wandering around in the capital?
2: Well, I guess to a certain extent, I kind of feel like that's the natural way of things. Um, You know, of course, Pennsylvania Avenue in front of the White House wasn't closed to automobile traffic until the bombings in Oklahoma City. And, you know, when the White House was first built, anyone could just wander right in. So there's a long history of sort of security measures gradually increasing. Ideally, it would be necessary, of course. It certainly shouldn't be necessary against domestic forces who are you know, not international enemies. Um, But while that is the case and while there is increasing threat from, you know, domestic actors, I do think it's essential. There are parts of it that make me extremely sad. So for example, when Lafayette Square was closed for most of last year, that was devastating because it is the heart of downtown DC. It is a shared space. I used to walk through it before the pandemic. I walked through it every day on my way to and from work. And so to not have that access was very upsetting. And um but I also, you know, um federal officials are facing different threats than I am and so I do want to prioritize their safety.
0: An obvious question to ask, uh, I lived in Washington D.C. I moved out there as, when I was a very young man and had lunch in Lafayette Square and there was no security at all. But one of the things I remember being discussed in the 70s was statehood for D.C. and it, All these years later, it's still a topic for discussion. I'd I'd love to hear from both of you on that subject.
2: I can't think of a good argument that's not based entirely on partisan differences not to have statehood. So, you know, we have a tradition against protesting taxation without representation since, you know, 1775 or even earlier And so how can we possibly say that there are all of these citizens that live in this country that are not permitted the same sort of representation? I also find the arguments, well, that's not what the Constitution says to be sort of ridiculous, because if we're, you know, looking at the intentions of the Constitution in 1787— I wasn't supposed to wear pants. I wasn't allowed to get a doctorate. I mean, we live in a different society than we lived in in 1787. That's why we that's why it changes. It's supposed to change. I mean, it's clear that this is a partisan issue. Um, It's clear that the reason most people are opposed to it is because they don't want to add an additional three electoral votes for the Democratic column. Oh, and the last argument I should say is that, you know. Well, only 700,000 people is not big enough for a state. Well, more people live in D.C. than live in Wyoming. So
1: We have 760,000 people here in North Dakota, so we are, we're, oh, well you're fine aware. <laughs> we're well aware of, of the concern. You're, I'm for statehood, of course. I think it's insane not to allow statehood for the District of Columbia. It's time. It's been time for 75 or more years. The notion that it was going to be merely a federal reserve has long since disappeared. Uh, so, yes, but but we know, you know, as a historian, that this is not the first time this sort of a subject has come up. The Missouri Compromise was just about this. So we're going to bring in a new state as a slave state. We don't want to do that, so we'll bring in a free state and the slave state to keep the balance in the Senate. The Kansas-Nebraska Act, when Lincoln was president, he brought Nevada in partly to get the silver of the territory uh, that Nevada was in, but he also wanted those votes for the election of 1864. And so there's a gerrymandering capacity. Uh, there's a gerrymandering element to this always. That one party is likely to lose. You know, if if DC were 50 percent Democrat and 50 percent Republican, it would stand a much better chance of becoming a state. But we all know that if DC becomes a state, it's going to be a Democratic state. And that's going to turn elections. I mean, we've had several elections recently where that would make a significant difference. But that's not reason enough to deny this, I don't think. And here's what bothers me about this, uh, David and Lindsay. It's, this, is part, this is, in a sense, part of voter suppress, the voter suppression movement. In other words, the country is much more democratic than it appears in the electoral college. You know, um, Mrs. Clinton won by 3 million votes. uh, Joe Biden won by 6 million votes. If we actually had something like a true democracy in which every eligible voter's vote would count, the country is getting to be predominantly Democratic and is unlikely ever at the national level to return to a Republican majority. That's just the demographics. And so to deny statehood, to hold the line against real democracy, strikes me as an appalling thing. The only thing one can say is it's not the first time in American history that this has occurred. But I do believe, and I and I, I welcome your comment on this, Lindsay, that this is, in, in a sense, a cousin to the voter suppression movement.
2: I think that's absolutely right. And it's a great way to put it. And it's a great way to explain the sort of larger trends that are happening right now. And the only... The only question you have to ask to really emphasize that is if there were 700,000 white voters in Michigan that were not being counted, how fast would the Republican Party go to make sure that they were counted? And um, that's, you know, that's not how democracies are supposed to work. That's not how our democracy in the 21st century is supposed to work. And um, it's a shame that such anti-democratic forces are so powerful right now.
1: Should we call the bluff? However, if Washington D.C.'s seven hundred some thousand residents were Trumpites, um, statehood might become problematic for the Democratic Party. Right? That's true. That's the problem with American life. That, <laughs> you know, there, nobody has a monopoly on Republican virtue. That it's true. It, it so often devolves into just naked partisan politics. And the thing that bothers me most as an American citizen is the is the reverse the lens problem that. Um, if if the Democrats do something, if their president does some awful thing, they defend him or her, foot the coin, it's the same in the other direction. And so we don't have a Jeffersonian party of deep, small-R Republican virtue saying, I don't care who's in charge. Executive orders aren't in the Constitution. I don't care who's in charge. Separation of powers must be maintained there are very few such people left in this country at least in in political circles and I think that Jefferson would be weeping over that
2: yeah I agree um although I mean well I have so many things that I want to say to that um there are you know there are humans that are ha- have shown to be an an example of that sort of virtue so Justin Amash would, is someone who I think generally takes a pretty principled stand regardless of whether it's good or bad for his party I'm keeping having... a tally
1: there, there's one go. <laughs>
2: Well, there have been times where, you know, um, Democrats, if they have found that members of their own caucus have, you know, committed inappropriate um, sexual harassment offenses, have forced out those individuals, the same, you know, standards do not apply on the other side. Now, of course, Chris Cuomo is still in office. So this is not a perfect this is not a perfect example. But there are you're right. There are very few. And I think that's very upsetting. However, I would also argue that that is, in some ways, I mean, I think Jefferson would be very disappointed, but he was also known to compromise on his values sometimes. Was... No, you're,
1: you're, you're breaking up. <laughs>
2: yeah, I, was... you,
1: you know, you, you don't understand the rule. If you're going to be on the Jefferson Hour, you have to accept our blind support for the third president of the United States.
0: Lindsay, pay no, uh, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. <laughs> you just, you go right ahead.
1: <laughs> yeah, wow. So, but when... To to do the the Democrats justice, when Bill Clinton had his problems, they were very hard on him. The Democrats tend to jettison their own more quickly when there's a scandal than the Republicans tend to do. There's a especially recently, and so I think that is a difference. I think that there is still some commitment to due process and, and Republican small R Republican virtue. It's not uh it's not an altogether. Even playing field, I don't think.
2: No, and it's of course not perfect because there are times that, you know, as you said with Washington D.C., I have no doubt that if Washington D.C. was solid Trump votes, then it would be a different story. So it's of course not a perfect example, but well, it, is it, a it might be a different. It so- might
0: be a difference. It might be a different story because you'd have Democrats opposing it as strongly as Republicans. I'm kind of interested. Well, that's no,
2: that's what I'm saying.
0: Yeah, um, I'm kind of interested to know. Uh, you know, so the decision was made, um, this compromise between Hamilton and Jefferson, and D.C. became the nation's capital. Did they make the right choice? Should they have left it in Philadelphia?
1: Well, first of all, let me say it was really Madison and Hamilton. Jefferson r- really was mostly just the host. Um, Madison felt very strongly about the funding bill, and he felt that it was just. It was, it was deeply unfair to states that had already paid their war debt, and that this was a form of double taxation and discrimination, and that Hamilton was using it to build a fiscal empire that was going to roll over the very principles of an American self-government. And Jefferson was sort of, I do think he's honest when he says, I, I, I kind of understood some of this, but I'd been away, mostly I just wanted to be, can't we all get along and be a harmonious host? But, I don't know the question. I should I, sort of begin with that, Lindsay. Was this compromise the right one? Where would we put the capital if we were just wanting virtue?
2: Oh, well, I guess that depends how you define virtue, right? Um, and of course, that that's at the crux of it because there were so many different definitions. um, and the players involved had different definitions. I do think I mean if we think about it from a financial standpoint if if Hamilton was right that he could not get this bill passed without Madison's support then I do think it was the right choice because the country was never going to get off the ground unless it got its credit back and so I do think that was essential. When we think about the values inherent in that and what the virtue is supposed to be I don't know. I mean what do we what do we want what is 21st century republican virtue? And um my guess is that we would have as just as many definitions today as we would have in 1789.
1: But maybe we move the capital to Omaha. I mean, maybe you want the whole (laughs) thing to pivot on Lebanon, Kansas, which is the geographic center of the United States. From my point of view, I mean, a, 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 a senator from Hawaii or California or Oregon has a long, long journey to work. But somebody, Joe Biden, as as United States senator and vice president, was able to take Amtrak home most nights. And so... One of Jefferson's principles is centrality.
2: I don't know how many senators want to spend a lot of time in Lebanon, Kansas. No um, insult, of course, intended to uh, residents of Lebanon, Kansas. But that is always the crux of the issue, right? And that was the problem with Washington, D.C. initially, is that it was not a particularly fun place to be. Uh, Have you
1: been to Lebanon, by the way? I have not. I don't know if we have
0: listeners there or not. We'll probably find out.
2: I I have been to Kansas. I went to Abilene. Um, I gave a talk at the Eisenhower Presidential Library, and the library is phenomenal. Um, I'm not sure that, granted, again, have not been to Lebanon. Certainly, Abilene doesn't offer as many of the entertainments as perhaps some of the big cities that we know. But
1: This is probably a good place (laughs) to wrap this up. Um, I I have one more thing to say. Lebanon is underrated okay and here's the added advantage when you come <laughs> out to visit us it's only about 40 miles from the world's largest ball of twine <laughs> Well, that is that, the very
2: top of my bucket list
1: i knew That's i knew great. you know and yeah. so i mean if that i think that changes your whole perspective on this
0: uh, i'm trying to i'm trying to rescue this program from falling into complete obscurity we need to uh wrap this conversation up but Lindsay, I I wanted to bring up your your latest blog, uh, May 22nd, Characteristics of Great Leadership, a terrific read. Um, I'm hoping that you'll come back and talk with us again, and perhaps that could be a subject of conversation. Meanwhile, if people want to read this, where can they find it?
2: Um, so a lot of my, all of my writing is available on my website, which is lindsaychervinsky.com. And, uh, it doesn't matter how you spell it. It's really easy to find me. I'm the only one out there. So even if you butcher it, you'll find me. And, um, then you can also subscribe to my newsletter, which is Imperfect Union. And you can find that either on my website or at lindsaychervinsky.substack.com. And I always include links in that to all of my latest pieces so you can stay up to date and find everything in one spot.
1: Well, we look forward to speaking with you again.
2: Thank you so much. I
1: think we need to get you a fellowship at Thomas Jefferson's Monticello so that you can be maybe deprogrammed a little bit here.
2: (laughs) So, you know, it's funny you say that. I'm actually, I kind of forgot to tell you guys this last time. Um, I'm going to be their long-term fellow this coming year. So I will be in Charlottesville for most of the academic year, this coming up year. So there's hope. There is hope. Thank you.
1: (laughs) Thanks for being on this program. We will see all of you next week for another exciting and important edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour.
3: The Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826, and this program presents his views President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. To obtain a copy of this or any show for a $12 donation, please call 701-575-0727. This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite No. 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program, Through the Eyes of Thomas Jefferson.